Hey, it's the official tapes. This is a radio program where we play the official releases from The Grateful Dead. Now, that's a band that just lives for performing live, so it made sense to bring on this cat. It's Mark Myers, and the uh, title of my book is Rock Concert. Rock Concert and Oral History is told by the artists, backstage insiders, and fans who were there. Now, his book goes all the way back to the 50s. He's going to talk a little bit about the relationships that the parents had with their kids and then how those kids grew up and then the relationship they had with culture. We're going to get into some rock and roll geography, uh, the importance of Bob Dylan going electric, Newport 65, and how that was basically the big bang for rock, rock and roll, rock concert, and just in life in general. Then he's also going to touch on other festivals too and how each one was just as unique as the uh, musical lineups at those festivals. That's something to look forward to, kind of a blueprint of what he's going to be talking about. And then also, of course, the uh, Grateful Dead and what they did for rock concert. Mark Myers on the official tapes. You're going to find a book that takes you from 1950 to 1985 and gives you a very clear sense and a very dramatic and exciting sense of how this business, how this industry went from boxing arenas to a multi-billion dollar industry. The Grateful Dead was probably, in some respects, compared to other bands, it was sort of easy listening. It was sort of like softer. It was gentler music. It was more folky, uh, you know, more folk rocky. But how they changed music, they fully embraced the drug culture. Uh, so they were able to pull in large numbers of people who were experimenting with drugs because their music ran long. The Grateful Dead was one of the first bands that could actually play long, improvise. They were really skilled musicians. And when the Grateful Dead showed up, you were going to hear a four-hour show, three to four-hour show. They would play one song for like 40 minutes. And if you were high, you know, on whatever you were taking or smoking, then, you know, that was kind of a trip for you. You know, it was like uh, it was like the soundtrack for whatever you were experiencing. So they could they pulled in large numbers of, of that audience. They were the first to play long, which inspired other groups to start playing long and, and doing what they called back then was called jamming. Even more important, they are the forefathers or, or the, the pioneers of sound systems. When the Grateful Dead showed up, in the late 1960s and early 70s, they were looking for perfect sound and they kept building and building and building larger sound systems to the point where they built this thing called the wall of sound that went up like four stories of a building. I mean, the thing looks like something from Star Trek. I mean, it is massive. They're literally speaker on top of speaker on top of speaker on top of speaker. And it goes up all the way to the ceiling. And then there's little speakers, and there's tweeters, and there's woofers, and there's mid-range speakers. And you know, it's just on and on and on. They wanted everybody in the audience, whether you were sitting in the front row or you were sitting all the way in the back on the top balcony, everybody should have the same exact quality of sound. So they pioneered the sound system, the big monster sound system. That, that was their invention. They pioneered long-form music, and they also did a great deal to give the drug culture a soundtrack.
I mean, the thing to remember about all of this, which is a fundamental lesson of my book, Rock Concert, is that the music you listen to now, I don't care what it is, has a history. Nothing exists in a vacuum. Whatever you're listening to now, these guys listen to stuff from 10, 15, maybe 30 years ago. And the people 10, 15, 30 years ago, they listened to something before them. And somebody listened to something before them. So all of this can be traced back to the beginning of time, which in rock and roll is about 1949, 1950. What I wanted to do is I wanted to create imagery so vivid that you actually saw what you were reading. In other words, even though you weren't there, you could see everything in your head almost like it was a movie. And if you did, if that happened to you, if you, you could visualize everything, then I did my job. The reporting and the research, you know, before I went and interviewed people I read everything I could read on the subject. I you know, watched every documentary I could on the subject because what I needed to do is go beyond all the things that people already knew. You know, so you know a certain number of things and other people know a lot of things, but I needed to go to a place where it was definitive, where I was getting these definitive eyewitness accounts of what happened, but not just so much what happened, but what changed as a result of what happened. I interviewed actually probably closer to 150 people. Only 90 people made the cut. So there are 90 voices in this book called Rock Concert, and they are giving eyewitness accounts, you know, of what they're seeing and hearing. Now, keep in mind, they're also then talking about other people. You know, it's even more than 90 people in this book. They're, they're talking about the eyewitness accounts of the who. The who aren't in this book, but you've got people like Steve Miller talking about how ticked off he was that, that Pete Townsend destroyed his guitar during the Monterey Pop Festival. So there's a lot of voices here, but it highly organized and chronological. It's not like this book's jumping all over the place like popcorn. It's unfolding step by step by step. If you just start the book and you know nothing, you learn a lot because things are moving in chronological order, like a story, you know, it's like a great story. You're going to find a book that takes you from 1950 to 1985 and gives you a very clear sense and a very dramatic and exciting sense of how this business, how this industry went from boxing arenas to a multi-billion dollar industry. History doesn't exist in a vacuum. Things don't change because suddenly something arrives on the scene and changes everything. Uh, much of history is shaped by external pressure. Uh, that's true of you know music in the early 2000s. I mean, the music is dramatically changed 
you know, you can say, oh, wow, the music changed in the early 2000s. It's amazing. And, and through the 2000s, it really changed. And I would say, well, some of that had to do with the arrival of iTunes and digital music and especially the home modem, you know, the high speed modem at home so that people could suddenly download things. So all of those external factors always play a role. So I knew that the history of the rock concert was going to have many different external forces. Keep in mind, before 1955, the record industry, this is going to sound really weird. The record industry didn't care about young people and had no interest in young people before 1955. From the start of recording history, you know, in the late 1800s and, you know, the start of jazz in 1917, all of this music up until 1955 were for adults. An adult could afford a phonograph. A kid couldn't afford a, one of these phonographs that you cranked up and played. Kids couldn't afford these 78 records, these 78 RPM records. Parents could. And radio programs weren't for kids. You know, they were for adults. Why? Because advertisers bought time on the radio and advertisers were selling stuff to parents. They weren't selling anything to kids. So it's not until 1955 that kids that radio suddenly discovers kids are listening and rhythm and blues and rock and roll start to broadcast over the radio. And then by 1955, you get music that's actually about kids' lives. It's about the anxieties kids were facing. It's about cars. It's about, you know, lousy teachers in high school. It's about going to the beach. It's about falling in love. It's about making up. It's about breaking up. So all those subjects were brand new. Music had never gone that way before. And then suddenly in the mid-1950s, they do. So the fact that kids weren't being addressed, the kids' issues, kids' needs, kids' anxieties aren't being addressed to the mid-1950s, that's why you start to see the rise of concerts. And that's why you start to see the rise of rock and roll, because kids are suddenly a market. They're a commercial market that it never existed before. And suddenly... It, they're worth billions of dollars. You know, by the 80s and the 90s, the entire culture is built to selling to young people, even adults who are trying to be young. I mean, nobody, keep in mind, when I was a kid growing up in New York, I grew up in the 60s. So, you know, I'm born in 56 and I'm 10 in 66 and I'm 20 in 76, right? So when I'm growing up in the 1960s, everybody I knew as kids, they wanted to be adults. Nobody wanted to be a kid because you couldn't do anything until you were 21 when I was growing up. There was no, you couldn't get into bars, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't drive, you couldn't do anything until you were much older. So everybody I knew dressed like adults. That's why, you know, when you look at photographs of your grandfather, like in pictures, everybody looks like they're 65 years old and it turns out they were 28. Like you look at your grandfather's photographs from like, or, or at whatever relative you have from like the 1950s and 60s, and they all look like little parents. You know, they all look like, but that's because there was no, nothing was being sold to kids. Kids were trying to get through childhood as fast as possible. And parents treated kids like, don't, we don't want to hear anything about you know we you just need to be seen not heard don't talk up we don't care what your opinions are oh we don't care what you want to eat this is what you're getting this is what you're doing 
this is how you're dressing. And all the clothes that were sold in the stores then were like, that's why a lot of girls dressed like their mothers and a lot of boys were dressed like their dads. There were no clothes for kids. I mean, it's hard to conceive of, but rock and roll ushers in. Rock and roll and rock concerts change America. Suddenly, fashion counts for kids. Skateboarding, everything you can think of that is for kids today, everything you can think of came about as a result of the rock concert and rock and roll. Because rock and roll was sort of revolutionary and because rock and roll was sort of talking to kids about sex and about drinking and about all kinds of things that parents didn't want them to listen to, parents and kids began to clash. Rock and roll was at the beginning was black music. It was music developed by black music, by black families who had migrated to places like California and to Detroit and Chicago. And they had a blues tradition and working in factories with the machinery and the rhythm of the machinery created this sort of this rhythm behind the blues that made it sort of danceable. So you, you get this music that has a dance beat to it and parents aren't happy about that. Parents aren't happy. You have to understand, Almost the entire country was segregated. We think of the just the South being segregated during the 19, you know, from the 1950s back into the 1800s. But the entire country was segregated. Like in Los Angeles, blacks lived in one neighborhood and couldn't really buy homes or, or go to a lot of places. And rock and roll became this integrated music. Kids didn't care about the stuff their parents cared about. They they were friends with black kids in school and they listened to black music and the black kids like the white kids. And, you know, the kids didn't understand this whole stuff that the, the baggage that parents brought with them, the kids didn't understand it. And the music reflected that because many of the groups that the kids were listening to were black. And, you know, some of the kids, even one of the kids I mentioned in the book, thought Elvis was black. I mean, you know, nobody cared about that stuff. You know, none of the young people cared about it. So rock and roll sort of became the music that wanted to change adult values. Kids had their own values. Now, suddenly they wanted it. They, the kids wanted their values to count. Adults wanted their values to count. And kids decided that, you know, rock and roll, you know, was about integrated audiences. It was about, you know, seeing who you wanted to see. It was about playing who, with whoever you wanted to play with. It was about being free. And through the years, rock and roll became sort of this champion of causes. So by, the, you know, it starts out as this you know, this music that supports kids in their battle against parents. Like, yeah, push back against your parents. What do they know? You know, you're you, you're a kid, you're, you're, you have rights too. I mean, that's how rock and roll began. And then it became this music about civil rights. And then it became music about end the draft and anti-Vietnam. And then it became music about stop world hunger. And then it became stop AIDS. And, you know, throughout history, throughout the rock concert history that I outline in my book, there are causes that rock and roll embraces. And that's why kids find that that music is so important to them, because for the first time, there was music, live music and recorded that sympathized and supported their values.
things start out small, but they always start out small. Things that become big, if they started out big, they would end pretty quickly. So they start out small and they, they grow. And, you know, these concerts that took place were, you know, really just to sort of show you this, the people you heard singing on the radio. You know, so if you're listening to the radio and you heard the Penguins or the Ravens or these groups in the 50s, you know, you could get to go see them in a theater and maybe like 3,000 people or 2,500 people would fit in those theaters and you'd get to hear these things. And it's not until later, it's not until much later that these people become bigger and bigger. And Elvis went on these tours, but they realized he was so popular. Why tour? You can just sit at home in Hollywood and make movies and make three times the amount of money. So the Hollywood move by Elvis was a financial one. Um, he was real good looking. He could memorize lines. Many of the films were kind of dopey, but at the same time, he still filled theaters and made, you know, made tons and tons of money doing them. But it was just more expeditious, more efficient for him, instead of going to where the audience was, for him to just do something in Hollywood and have the audiences come to him through the theaters. Keep in mind, Elvis's concerts weren't there wasn't low turnout. It's just that when he's going to a county fair in the middle of Kentucky to perform, you know, you're getting only the young population in that community. And then of that young population, you're only getting the, let, getting the ones who were allowed to go out. And then of the ones who were allowed to go out, it's probably only the ones who could get a date. So, you know, it's, it's a certain amount of people coming to see this person called Elvis. By the way, nobody knew who he was at that point, right? He's not a brand name like he is today. He's not an icon. He's just some guy getting up on stage with two other guys and he's wiggling around and singing stuff and the girls are screaming. And, you know, it, it's like a novelty, really. The rock concert starts in Los Angeles. You know, people think it started in Cleveland, but it didn't. You know, they think of the Alan Freed Moondog Coronation as the first rock concert. And that's not true. Uh, in fact, that wasn't even a concert. It was canceled about 10 minutes in, 15 minutes in because of overcrowding. But the rock concert, its earliest roots really are in Los Angeles. And Los Angeles, that's the case because you had this enormous black migration to California during the 1920s, but also during World War II, because there were jobs. There were 15 million people in, in uniform during World War II. Uh, the vast majority, you know, a good number were white. So women and blacks and Latinos and anybody who wasn't in the service to find work that was better paying than where they lived down south, if they migrated to California, they could work in factories that were, that were cranking 24 hours a day making arms, making ships, making guns, making grenades. I mean, you know, factories were buzzing during World War II. So you had vast majority of a large number of black people settling in, in the California area. And the music that they were creating was blues music and dance music, which became rhythm and blues. And rhythm and blues, of course, became rock and roll. But at the, at the dawn of this in 1950, 51, it was rhythm and blues. And that's where it begins. And then 
you know, you, in Cleveland, you know, rock and roll comes about because you've got Alan Freed there, a dynamic DJ who starts to really promote this music in a big way and starts to support teenagers in a big way. And then Chicago, you've got the electric blues and you've got somebody like Chuck Berry and Bo Diddley who come up uh, from uh, Chuck Berry comes up from St. Louis and releases Maybelline in 1955 and Maybelline takes the country by storm. I mean, that's really rock and roll's first big hit. And, you know, then it shifts down to Memphis, where you've got the combination of rockabilly and gospel and R&B combining to create Elvis and other artists like that down there. And then it goes back, it goes up to New York, where you've got, you know, these massive concerts being held at the Brooklyn Paramount and also the Newport Jazz Festival, which is really the the father of the outdoor music festival, the Newport Jazz Festival, which was held in Newport, Rhode Island. So it's interesting how the music starts to migrate around the country. And when it hits different cities, it sounds different and has a different feeling, you know, whether it's the electric guitar of Chuck Berry in Chicago or the saxophone in Los Angeles or Elvis's stage act and the sort of the country Western feel, the country Western rhythm and blues feel that Memphis had. And then up in New York where it's much slicker, you know, you've got more vocal groups, you know, Frankie Lyman and the teenagers. So it's, it, there are different flavors all over the country at this time, which was fascinating, I thought. You know, when Dylan finishes performing that electric set with guys from the Butterfield Blues Band behind him, you know, as one of the sources said, he basically invented rock without the roll. That the rock and roll era of, you know, funny glasses and, you know, weird outfits and playing the piano standing up and all of the stuff we think of the flamboyance of rock and roll is suddenly gone. The reason for a lot of the tension that went on there is a clash of generations that you had the older folk artists and you had Dylan and all these younger folk artists who wanted to sort of tap into what the Beatles were doing and wanted to play electric instruments. And the young people just decided to crank the volume up and blow them away. And you now have the beginning of rock, which is the singer songwriter singing original songs and songs less about love traditionally and more about observational things, societal things. In 1967, 66, 67, you have the first outdoor concert festival. The first big one, well, the first one is that the, the BN in San Francisco where bands performed at this poetry reading. There were 30,000 people there out to Golden Gate Park. But the first organized outdoor festival is the Monterey Pop Festival in June of 67. Between that date and Woodstock in August of, seven, of 69, you have maybe two dozen concerts, maybe more outdoor festivals all over the country. And they're basically free. Some tried to charge admission, but too many people showed up. And people believed back then that that live music should be free. They were happy to buy the album, but that live music should be a treat for them because they bought the album and made the, the artists wealthy. You know, you've got all these things going on. Woodstock, you suddenly have 400,000 people show up and it's almost a disaster for several reasons. You know, not only does it rain, 
you know, it was just a poor for most, much of the time, but there weren't any facilities. There were no bathroom facilities, not adequate bathroom facilities, no food, con you know, no concessions there, no places to get water. Uh, it was a very dangerous situation that fortunately worked out okay. Fortunately for Woodstock, they had a film crew come in and, and tape it, film it, because that documentary, when it came out in 1970, became it made everybody wish they had gone and it sort of crystallized the generation as as lovers of outdoor rock music um and it also was a mirror for, for an entire generation of kids it showed them who they were and why they were important but three months after woodstock you've got a festival called altamont and at altamont is a disaster uh the stages only came up to your knees the hell's angels were there to you know, be security guards. They were beating up musicians, beating up people in the first row, bunch of rows. Somebody gets stabbed and killed there. They're, you know, it's just a, it's just a fiasco. You can see that in a film called Gimme Shelter. After Altamont, no community in the country would grant a license for an outdoor festival. And rock goes indoors. That's when you start to see rock go into sports arenas and go into stadiums, environments that could be controlled with security, that had plenty of bathrooms. You could go up and get a Coke and you could get a hamburger. You know, it was a place, a controlled environment. And that's where communities wanted them, not outdoors causing near riots and, and beatings and stabbings. It just wasn't wasn't a smart thing and they were on the hook for it if those things got really bad uh somebody was going to get sued so then you know the question is well how does how does watkins Glen draw six hundred thousand people and that's cool by in 1973 watkins Glen was held at a racetrack and it was a controlled environment in that you had to pay admission you couldn't get into that thing unless you had tickets or you bought tickets and in that controlled environment there were plenty of facilities for all the things that I mentioned. 600,000 people showed up because they could. There was plenty of space for them. And only three bands played. This is the other thing. Woodstock lasted a whole bunch of days. Um, but Watkins Glen was held also during the day and into the night. But they only invited three bands. Instead of like 25 bands or 30 bands, they only had three bands show up. Allman Brothers, The Grateful Dead, and the band. Um, and just those three bands played, and then it was time for everybody to go home. And everybody went home orderly. Uh, the other difference is that everybody who was at Watkins Glen, a large number of people at Watkins Glen, were the younger brothers and sisters of those who went to Woodstock in 69. It was just enough years for the, the kids who couldn't go to Woodstock because they were too young, were suddenly old enough to relive the Woodstock experience. And they did that in 19, they couldn't do it in 69, but in 73, you know, if you do the math, if you're 13 and and it's like 69, 71, two, three, that's four years later. So if you're 13 and 69 and can't go, you're 17 in, in 73 and now you can go. And they all relived their brother and their older brother and sister's experience at this, at this much more subdued festival. There's new stuff throughout the book, whether it's Dylan Goes Electric or the Beatles at Shea, or if you pick any chapter, you're going to learn something you didn't know. Uh, even if you think you know everything about the rock concert or rock and roll history, these eyewitness accounts are going to provide you with information you didn't know before. I guarantee it. Rock and roll, like and the rock concert, it's an industry unlike any other because it was built by characters. 
It was built by passionate people. It was built by enthusiasts. It was built by people with this enormous love for the music and the artists because the music and the artists addressed their personal anxieties, their personal issues, not the issues of their parents, but spoke directly to them. When art speaks directly to you, when you feel that your issues are, are being captured in that art and you feel like those those pieces of art are expressing how you feel and the stuff you're going through you develop this emotional connection to it it's just natural and the reason i stopped in 1985 is because after 1985 the, the rock concert becomes a different animal it becomes much more corporate. It be, tickets become much more expensive. And Live Aid, as the guys, as some of the sources said in the book, was the last of the old time concerts, the last of the inexpensive concert, the last of the you show up, you sit where you want, and everybody's together and as one large group listening to artists they love. That changes after after 1985. Uh, you start to see the corporatization of rock and roll. You see computerized ticketing get more sophisticated, and it just changes. It just becomes different. You can go to Amazon or your local bookstore, but Amazon is a very fast click. It's called Rock Concert. Nice and simple. The cover looks like a Harley Davidson. It's all black with white lettering and gold stars. Uh, the subtitle is An Oral History as Told by the Artists, Backstage Insiders, and Fans Who Were There. I'm Mark Myers, and I interviewed more than 90 people for eyewitness accounts of how the rock concert grows from the early days in Los Angeles in 1951 all the way up to Live Aid in 1985.